Welcome to a podcast by Grantmakers in the Arts, a national association of public and private arts and culture funders. I'm Sherilyn Seely, GIA's program manager. This is our third program of the Grantmakers in the Arts 2019 Narrative Change Series, and we are glad you joined us today. GIA is a community of practice with a shared vision of investing in arts and culture as a strategy for social change. One of the major issues we are exploring is dominant or mainstream narratives that continue to live on and perpetuate racialized outcomes and practices. With a system that is not broken, but rather structured intentionally to foster inequitable and unjust outcomes, the need for narrative change is more urgent now than ever. To paraphrase the words of journalist Ella Saltmarsh, narrative change frequently involves collaboration across differences and brings together actors with very different positions to re-envision the goals of a system and to change it. In this Narrative Change podcast, we are glad to welcome Jeff Chang, national leader in narrative and culture strategy, co-founder of editorials Culture Strike and Color Lines, and vice president for narrative, arts, and culture at Race Forward. And facilitating the conversation, we have Eddie Torres, Gritmakers in the Arts, president and CEO. Eddie, why don't you let our listeners know what we're going to discuss today? Thanks, Sherilyn. In addition to Jeff serving as Vice President for Narrative, Arts, and Culture at Race Forward, Jeff Chang has written extensively on arts, culture, politics, and music in such works as We Gonna Be All Right, Who We Be, and Can't Stop, Won't Stop. In his writing and in his role at Race Forward, he calls on people to consider the power of storytelling as a strategy for narrative shift and narrative change. But Jeff, let's build some more context for our listeners. Um, you know, I'm always really impressed by the way you draw a through line between nonprofit arts, mass culture, public policy and practice to support artists or not, private sector efforts to monetize culture and sometimes, unfortunately, monetize people and their cultures, and also the efforts to police the makers of culture. I mean, it's an incredibly broad body of work with incredible depth. And coming from all of these perspectives, I wanted to ask you to set some context for our, what you mean when you talk about narrative change and what you mean when you talk about story, narrative, and culture. Sure. First of all, thanks so much for inviting me to be part of uh, this conversation. I've been a huge fan and a beneficiary of Grantmakers in the Arts. Um, in the past and i just love y'all's work and i'm so glad y'all are doing this podcast to to kind of more popularize a lot of these ideas that we've been working with you know it, it's it's interesting because i think that we're at a point now where people have broadly begun to really understand the power of culture in making broad social change and moving us towards social justice and racial justice and so we're I think in a phase now where people are trying to think a lot more about how to uh, theorize um, how to make that change and uh, implementing um, work that's strategic about pushing us towards greater racial justice, greater social justice. Um, and so part of that is actually making the definitions solid. You know, For instance, people use the term story and narrative as if they're the same thing. And we actually think of them a little bit differently. Um, story is kind of the basic unit of change, right? We tell stories to each other, uh, about each other, uh, in order to express 
the things that we desire, the things that we uh, want to end, that the things that we want to transform. We make heroes of people. We express our values. We give kind of an arc and a narrative to what we want to see happen in our stories. And narratives are kind of the collections of those stories that point us in a certain kind of a direction uh, in terms of thinking about how we should act on particular social questions or issues. They give us feelings, right? A narrative gives us a feeling about how we should do things. It gives, it gives us values as well. So it, it, it basically primes us on our values. It gives us modes of action and it gives us an analysis. So narratives are, are something that are above story. They're a little bit bigger than story. And what we see in the culture is people doing battle with different narratives. So say scarcity, going up against a narrative of abundance. Um, you, in other words, somebody on the one hand with a, a, a parcel of stories saying, there's just not enough, we have to make choices. And then on the other hand, somebody with a parcel of stories saying, no, there's enough for everyone. It's just about trying to figure out how to distribute that. Um, the best way that I can describe it is to talk about the culture wars, which we've been kind of living through really for the last, uh, more than the last half century, like really pretty much all of my lifetime, all of many of our lifetimes, we've been in culture wars. And right now what we see is the very idea of America at stake. On the one hand, there's a narrative about America in decline, America that is on its deathbed, that's being ruined by multiculturalism, that's been ruined by diversity, by progressive campaigns and values, right? And on the other hand, a narrative of an America that hasn't yet become what it could be, that hasn't met its ideals yet. The sort of America of Langston Hughes versus the America of Donald Trump, if you will. And so we start with that as a way to be able to describe what it is that's happening in the culture broadly and to be able to give people an understanding of, of, of what the directions are that we might be able to take to move towards narrative justice and narrative equity. First of all, that's fantastic and helpful. And I want to tie that to where it feels to me like you're kind of headed anyway, the role of narrative strategy and cultural strategy, what you mean by them and how they can manifest. Sure. Um, narrative strategy and cultural strategy are kind of t terms of art that have come up, I think, in the last, you know, maybe few years. It, it's the way I describe it is they're just new words for very, very old uh, ways of, of doing things, right? So that when, when civil rights demonstrators took to the lunch counters, right, they were creating a narrative. They were creating a narrative of the kind of change that they wanted to make. They had a strategy. They were going to sit down as if to have a meal, and they were going to receive the brutality and the punishment of people who uh, were racist and uh, wanted to maintain segregation. And so literally in this narrative making, you have a story of folks literally just wanting to have some food, not being able to be served. And then random customers or, or people in the restaurant physically harassing folks who are just sitting down for a cup of coffee. You know, this is narrative strategy. This is narrative. This is narrative making. And and when we use the term cultural strategy, 
cultural strategy is something that's become, I think, very popular in the last maybe decade or so as a way of describing the role that artists and people who work actively in the culture can think about moving the needle, right? Can think about how to build power for their narratives. Narratives that push us towards equity, that pu push us towards justice. And so we've seen all kinds of ways in which cultural strategy has been deployed. I mean, the Occupy movement in some ways kicked us off with a poster, right? Of, of a ballerina standing on top of, of the Wall Street Bull. And so this image is an intervention, right? It allows people to actually break through the monotony and the oppressive uh, sense of not being able to do anything of every day in it within everyday life and to be able to imagine a different way of being able to move in the world to uh, literally occupy the world right and then to change the world and I think that Black Lives Matter has been really probably the most generative narrative and cultural strategy that we've seen in the last decade and that's something that has reaffirmed I think the notion that social movements that come from the bottom uh, lift everybody up. Thank you. That's fantastic. Jeff, I wanted to explore something for a moment. Um, I'm reminded of a, a passage in the work of Ian Haney Lopez. When he actually describes his not using the term backlash, because backlash implies that something natural has happened, um, something inevitable. Instead, he makes clear that what we call backlash is actually deliberate strategy to fight progress. And this reminded me um, of your work, and it reminded me of a couple of examples, so I hope you don't mind if I engage you around them. One of them was your work, Who We Be, and your articulation of the culture wars specifically to eliminate, but eventually it just became to cut funding for the National Endowment for the Arts. And, you know, what came to mind for me, you'd articulated it as the story was artists and their work don't deserve public support, but it only worked within the context of a larger narrative. And it was a deliberate narrative that was triggered and maintained to place that story into it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and the narrative there, again, being of scarcity, right? And of your money going to fund this crazy art, right? Mm -hmm. I, so I think that, you know, Ian Haney Lopez's point is is very well taken, and it's one of the reasons actually that we've struggled with the with even the term uh, sh uh, narrative shift or cultural shift uh, or narrative change or cultural change because the the words shift and change don't actually describe what it is that the stakes are as much as they describe what's really just happening, and this is something that we see again happening in the Trump era. There is uh, a Me Too movement that exposes violence against women, sexual assault, sexual violence, how pervasive it is, how it's, it's uh, protected and upheld by a system of patriarchy. And what you get is a pushback. In the Kavanaugh hearings, you, you saw people saying things like, this doesn't matter. It happened so long ago. 
and uh, in addition to the usual types of uh, tropes of you know either she asked for it right. or or she's lying and so what you what you had then is me too the me too narrative like being met with the back to back to patriarchy type of narrative and the point that i'm making is that this is narrative shift in action that we can use the term narrative shift to talk about advancing the me too idea or me too narrative but the other side could also use the term narrative shift to try to fight against the narrative of me too right to maintain patriarchy so the idea of shift is just a description of what's happening you have these tides that are pushing against each other all the time narrative change is happening all the time we're successful then we have to do narrative defense right we don't do narrative shift anymore we do narrative defense yeah and i love how you articulate that in your written work because you really make it clear that while you know on one hand the story is that the arts don't deserve public support as a story about cutting your taxes and not wasting government money it doesn't hold up particularly well because the amount is so trivial but when you couple it with the narrative that women, members of the LGBTQ community, people of color are thieves and that they are subhuman. It's a dehumanizing narrative. And that's what really gives it its wings and its legs. And so for those of us who do advocate for public support for the arts, it's very easy to forget that what actually fuels the anti-public uh, support for the arts sentiment is inherently a dehumanizing narrative. Right. And I think historically, too, just to build on what you're saying, Eddie, is historically there have been tons of efforts from the very beginning to defund federal government funding uh, for the arts, right? Um, the reason that it takes off in, in the 1980s is because of the arrival of these artists who are challenging whiteness, mm. just straight up, right? Uh, challenging patriarchy, straight up. Um, that's what gives the culture wars of the 90s, their, the 80s and the 90s, their edge, uh, their intensity, um, and the, uh, that kind of intensity and edge is similar to what we are seeing uh, these days in, in the body politic more broadly. Right. And I wanted to also briefly touch upon the exploration in Can't Stop, Won't Stop of, again, two competing narratives. And we have a moment where some of the creative work that comes to define this country's culture over time emerges out of a group of Americans who are for the first time at a grand scale putting forward, we are cultural producers, we are cultural innovators. And this is running right up against a, a narrative that is the diametric opposite of that. And um, that conflict gets, uh, um, you know, made very, very literal in the criminalization of youth. I mean, in, in the way that we understand it in our generation today. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, man, you're hitting on all the cool topics here. <laughs> so appreciate you, Eddie. You're the best, man. I mean, it's that Bronx thing, I know. So I, I know we're just trying to rep. That's that's dope. That's super dope for me, though. I mean, one of the things that, that was really weird for those of us who kind of 
uh, and we're dating ourselves now here too, right? But <laughs> for those of us who lived through that era, was to think about how um, how the the laws that we eventually see around um, stop and frisk, right? Around um, sort of um, uh, rounding up containing youth of color, off, running them off the corner, right? Gang injunctions, curfews, all of these types of things actually have their roots in this strange moment in the, in the, in the sort of mid 80s, early 80s, where cities were like, who are these kids with their freaking boom boxes? And what are they doing taking up all the sidewalk here to do these weird dances, right? And they're not even singing. They're like spitting words over these drums that can they turn that stuff down, please, right? It was like nuisance laws that actually preceded stop and frisk. And, and so thinking about the ways in which culture actually was prophetic, Right. This idea of hip hop as being this gigantic, we are here. We don't care what you think in so many ways, from graffiti on the trains to reappropriating public space to do your dance. Yeah. Right? Literally moving from that to the politics of the Warren gangs and the war on youth in the 80s and the 90s. There's a direct correlation. There's a di direct connection uh, mm -hmm. between the two. And that the hysteria of this from the, the boom boxes to who are all these kids in hoodies on the corner, there must be a gang, is basically uh, a racial hysteria, right? It's, it's about the containing of black bodies, of brown bodies, and the sort of idea that these are not people that we see as part of our society. These are people who are no good to us, who are surplus to us, surplus to our economy, surplus to our politics. They don't belong here. They belong far away from us in places that we don't actually have to see uh, on a daily basis. And so there is, I think, a lot of the basis for why generationally too, I think you see this shift from people just thinking about politics as the exercise of power through the legal system through public policies and that kind of thing to thinking about power in the exercise of uh, cultural marginalization that our generation in so many ways was able to draw those links because we could see the state working against us. And so one of the things that you start seeing, I think by the late nineties are young organizers and activists who are saying, we need to organize ourselves around power. We understand our power to be the power to create, to, to make culture. We've infected the entire world with our cultural virus here mm -hmm. of hip hop, right? And that's the way that we leverage ourselves into power. And so you see uh, this flurry of organizing happening around police brutality, around education, around the environment. And that has continued all the way through to now. It's continued literally for the last 20, 25 years. And, uh, and so that's kind of how we arrive at this moment of talking about narrative strategy and cultural strategy. 
Great. Now, I want to ask you, I mean, as grantmakers in the arts, obviously, we have a, a core community who are listening to this and, uh, you know, who come to our conference to hear you speak, etc. Um, I'd like to, to ask you what you would like them to take away from this conversation and from your work in general and from your insights in general. Well, I think one of the things that we've said, um, we've got to think about ways to be able to reach people where they're at. And so to folks who are funding uh, change work, who are interested in racial and social justice, um, I say, like, look at the intersections of where folks are coming from the arts and the culture uh, to be able to change politics. Uh, and vice versa. Where are the movement folks who are, are thinking about culture uh, as a, a, a very, very important strategic um, tool to be able to use in advancing movements? Um, and, I'm, and, and I think the one thing that I would say is that every major social movement requires a leap of the imagination. And we've seen that happen again in Occupy, Black Lives Matter, uh, Me Too, all of these movements, we've seen a massive explosion in imagination. And part of the way that that's manifested is that people see these stories in these narratives. They see their stories in these narratives. It gives people voice to be able to talk about, oh, this is my story. This is how I've been affected by it. This is why this hashtag is, is uh, resonating for me. Um, and that's really the basis of how movements are built. Uh, and so connecting that power to uh, institutional power, uh, to being able to transform our institutions is the strategic work that we need to be doing at this particular point in time. Great. Before we sign off, I just want to make sure I give you an opportunity to include summarizing or parting thoughts for our listeners. Um, I want folks also to think about what they're doing as risk capital, as, as being able to invest in things that may not always be successful, mm -hmm. but that will generate a lot of learnings for us as we move forward. You know, and at Grandmakers in the Arts, in our capitalization work, one of the things that we uh, try to impress upon our members is that what separates an organization that is surviving from one that is thriving is specifically risk capital, the ability to take risks, to pursue new ideas, to take advantage of opportunities in real time, and if those don't work, the doors don't close. You continue and you pursue the next risk and the next opportunity and the next big idea. So Jeff, I just want to say thank you. This has been such an honor. I should hand it off to Sherilyn to wrap us up. Sherilyn? Thank you, Eddie. And thank you both for that really interesting conversation. And for all of our listeners, be sure to visit our website for more GIA Narrative Change Series programming and resources. If you have any questions about this podcast or upcoming programming, feel free to reach out to me, Sherilyn Seeley, at sherilyn at giarts.org or visit our website, giarts.org. Be sure to tune in to our next program of the series, the Narrative Change Twitter chat on August 8th. So be sure to follow Grantmakers in the Arts on Twitter and Facebook at giarts for the Twitter chat and other exciting new updates. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>